Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Premier Doug Ford unveils his new cabinet today, John Best of the Bay Observer will join us to discuss the possible appointments and the ramifications. With enough support, could Ukraine actually defeat Russia? One U of T professor says yes. We'll talk with him about that. And the Senate passes its first major federal gun safety bill in decades. Will it pass in the House? And are they finally listening to the calls for gun control? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is the day that uh, Premier Doug Ford will announce his new cabinet. Uh, as we speak, they're getting upset, all up, set up right outside of uh, the legislature. As a matter of fact, it's a beautiful sunny day in Toronto. And uh, so they're going to uh, do this whole thing outdoors. That's going to get started in just a few minutes, I, th- I suppose. A uh, lot of speculation about that. And, of course, there are implications to who gets what portfolio uh, regionally. And, of course, with some of those heavy-duty portfolios, not the least of which, of course, is health uh, that was held by Christine Elliott in the last uh, legislature. Now, she didn't run again, so that's a major hole to fill. To uh, talk about this and maybe even do a little speculation, uh, please to welcome back to the program John Best, who is the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, a pleasure to have you with us. I hope you're doing well these days. Doing fine, Bill. Nice to be with you. Yeah, this is a, this is a big day to find out who gets what. Um, you know, it's a major election. Uh, he's actually increased his seat total, as we were talking about over the last couple of days. Uh, and the speculation is, is uh, he's also going to increase the size of cabinet today. Well, I think he probably will. A, he's got more members, and uh, this, who knows uh, what where his future lies, but if, if this is his last, uh, you know, his second term, and if he is not possibly going to run again, he can afford to uh, take a little heat for expanding the cabinet. I mean, that's usually a one-day story. If you look at the, at the previous uh, Liberal government, uh, they had almost everybody either in the cabinet or a parliamentary assistant. So um, he he had a fairly lean cabinet in the in the first term, and so he's got a little bit of wiggle room. I, I agree with you. It'll be a one day story. I mean, yeah, there are financial implications because cabinet uh, officials make more money than just backbench MPs do. Uh, so there's that element to it. But, uh, you know, he's going to come back and argue, well, there's a lot more to do this term. You know, the get it done was the, was the mantra. And uh, to get it done, he's probably going to say, but I need help here and here. I, I imagine uh, you're going to see a few ministers appointed to uh, some of these special projects. Uh, you know, not just the transportation minister, but somebody who may be overseeing these highway projects he wants to do. Uh, you, you don't hear much about uh, about ministers without portfolio much anymore, uh, just to kind of get them in the door and around the cabinet table. But uh, who knows how he's going to actually phrase it today. Well, they, they, they now call it associate ministers. Uh, and, uh, for instance, uh, in, in Burlington, Jane McKenna was an associate minister of, uh, I forget the portfolio, frankly, of possibly family and children. So it's simply a different, it's a different name change. Um, the one thing that's different in, in terms of cabinet speculation, which is what we're doing, uh, is... It used to be, uh, through all the years of McGinty and Wynn, the Toronto Star would have every post uh, in their story on on the day of or even online the night before. Uh, Now you have to go to the Toronto Sun, uh, or I I don't get the post, but uh, the Sun is the only uh, area paper that, that has even ventured to speculate on on some of the portfolios. And uh, they're well, suggesting that Sylvia Jones may well get the health portfolio that uh, Christine Elliott has vacated. 
and, and there's politics within the politics in, in some of these choices, isn't there, John? Uh, you know, the, the, who's who's going to be, well, as uh, Christian Elliott was, the, the deputy premier. Uh, I don't know if Sylvia Jones is in line for something like that, but it's pretty obvious that, that she was a, a trusted cabinet minister in the last uh, Ford government. Uh, and, and those are the sorts of people he needs to lean on, I guess, in this quote. It, the, I mean, the cabinet is an inner circle, but there's an inner circle within the inner circle. Uh, usually have about two or three cabinet ministers that, uh, that have the, the premier's ear all the time. And I think Sylvia Jones was one of those. Uh, I'm not so sure who the other ones might be uh, coming up there. I know he, he kind of likes the job Stephen Lecce did. I'd be surprised if he moved out. Uh, probably going to stay in the in the education portfolio. Uh, which is going to be a rather dicey situation this year because a couple of teachers' contracts are up and uh, there's going to have to be some heavy-duty negotiations there. Yeah, um, I, I think we kind of overlooked Peter Bethlen Falvey, uh, who, who I fully expect will, will stay in uh, finance. Um, he is, uh, when you look at his resume, uh, he is probably the best qualified finance minister at federal or provincial level that I've ever seen, just in terms of his resume. He spent years uh, working on Wall Street. He's got uh, great education convention uh, credentials. Um, so uh, I, I would imagine uh, that would not be changed. He's... Um, you know, he's, he's not a flashy guy, but uh, Ford's a businessman uh, at the end of the day. And if, if going back to Sylvia Jones, it was interesting. If you think about uh, during those daily news conferences during uh, the pandemic, that there were times when he'd have Christine Elliott there. Uh, and sometimes he'd have Stephen Lecce there because if it touched on uh, school closures, but Sylvia Jones uh, was was there uh, quite often, and so you say to yourself, "Well, wh why do you have the Solicitor General at a it was essentially a COVID thing?" I think right there, uh, you probably saw the signs of um, uh, his confidence in her because, from a portfolio standpoint, it really didn't make sense. But she always added uh, that that stability. Uh, she's a very precise in the way she speaks. Um, She's described uh, by somebody that spoke to Brian Lilly as she's the girl in school with the blind, with the binders, the highlighters and her homework done. And uh, so she really buttoned down and uh, and Ford likes that. He, he like because, again, because of his business experience, he likes people that can perform. Um, I did hear I think it was on your uh, news today that, that he's thinking of putting his nephew, Michael Ford, in. I'm not sure that's a great idea. The young man just uh, spent half a term on, or well, I guess most of a term on Toronto City Council. And um, again, that may be a signal that that, that Ford sees it as a two-term uh, mission because uh, you know there, there could be some heat on that score for sure, both, both yeah, in the media and in the back benches. I, I mean, you could make that argument that Michael Ford's got a rather meager, uh, you know. Uh, CV right now, but so did Doug Ford. I <laughs> think he, he's served about as long as he did, and then and now he's the premier of the province. Uh, I, I don't know about the experience element of this, but there are some pretty capable people there. And the other thing that usually tries to happen in a situation like this, most premiers anyway, is they try to first of all reward people that won tough seats in, in the last election, and there were a couple of those. Uh, but also, there's a territorial element to this. And uh, for instance, you take the Hamilton area, uh, under the previous 14 years of liberal rule, 
we in the Hamilton area uh, were pretty well served by a number of different ministers. Uh, Marie Butriani for a period of time, Sophia Aginolides, uh, Ted McBeacon, of course, uh, Jennifer Mossop was, was in there for a little while. Uh, this past Ford government, there was nobody because aside from Donna Skelly, there were too many people around and she was a relative newcomer to provincial politics anyway. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that Hamilton will be represented in this cabinet. What are you hearing, John? Well, I'm, I, it is speculation, Bill. I haven't heard anything uh, that one way or the other, and you can certainly know uh, that anybody locally that's been tapped, if they've been tapped, it'll be the best kept secret right up until 11.15 this morning when they're, when they're announced. I mean, if you look at, at gender and, uh, you know, those kind of, considerations and the the fact that that uh, jennifer did or that uh, donna did you know hold the seat again and that she increased her her numbers you would you would think uh that that she would be considered um the the member for burlington who kind of took the local cabinet post last time she stepped down and and was replaced by a by a newcomer so, uh, you know, I, I don't know where, where it goes from there, Bill, frankly. I, I think we just have to wait and see. Um, certainly, uh, Neil Lumsden is a well-known figure, but uh, I don't know about the optics of uh, passing over um, a female who's, who's got some experience as a PA uh, for a relative newcomer who's a, um, a gentleman of a certain age. So I think we just leave it there. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I, Neil Lumsden is you know, a nice guy very, and a successful businessman. He's, he's been very good at the ventures in which he's been a, a part of. Uh, but Donna's been there and kind of carried the banner for the Ford government when it came to the LRT project in Hamilton. And, and we certainly know that had its ups and downs. Uh, and and I, I agree. I mean, if he were to pass her over uh, for Neil Lumsden, for instance, in this particular area, that sends a message to Donna Skelly. Uh, you can remember, and I, I, it was the second or the first, maybe it was the first McGinty government. Uh, it was a slam dunk. Everybody thought, well, Dominic Agostino was going to be in that cabinet. Well, he wasn't. And uh, I think there were some health implications because sadly Dominic died not too long after that. Uh, but but it caused a lot of, of anger here in the Hamilton area. Uh, and uh, a couple of people actually bolted from the party. I mean, you may remember that uh, they just decided, okay, fine, if, if you're going to do this to our friend, uh, we're not liberals anymore. And it got pretty messy for a while. So uh, there are ramifications if you don't make the right choices in the right areas. Yeah, and the, the other thing, and just looking at the whole uh, cabinet selection, ironically, there's, there's kind of a downside uh, to being a representative from a safe riding uh, because the government knows frankly that they could probably pass that member over and not lose the seat uh, you know you look at some of these lanark addingtons and and getting up into bruce and uh, gray and and some of these uh, rural uh, counties and and ridings uh, they you know frankly the conservatives know they'll get that seat no matter what and uh, so that that kind of works against a member where here in Hamilton, you've, you've got a, a seat that was taken away from the NDP. Um, the Donna, uh, uh, you know, captured the seat. Uh, so it, it's just a, it's really interesting. And, and because of that, uh, one of the names, if you're thinking about who's in and who's out, and we're starting to really get into dangerous ground here, but um, there's some thought that Lisa McLeod from the Ottawa area might be out 
um, because uh, there are some performance issues there. And that's a seat that, that frankly, has been a pretty safe seat. I mean, she's been in the legislature for several terms uh, when the conservatives were not in power. So I guess it that's Ottawa area seat is maybe seen as a safe seat. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation about that. Uh, I, I know she, in the first couple of years of the Ford mandate, I uh, got in a lot of hot water because uh, their social services uh, commitments. I mean, she she had the autism file, and, and it did not go well. And there's a lot of pushback and a lot of neg negativity. Uh, they moved her over, though, to, uh, to basically a tourism and sport, and she did a pretty decent job there. But then there was that story, uh, just as the election was starting to unfold, uh, about the fact that she was accepting money from the Riding Association for what some people are saying were personal expenses. Uh, it didn't get a whole lot of play and hasn't since the election, but that's the sort of thing that, that I think Ford is going to get a little antsy about. I mean, he had too many people, Rod Phillips being one, who I know he liked a lot, uh, but Phillips did the whole thing about going on the vacation when no one was supposed to during COVID, and that cost him his job. He came back, but it was never the same kind of relationship. So I, I don't know. And I, I, the bottle yeah. of maple, maple syrup killed him. I think that was really what did it. Uh, <laughs> sitting there with with one of those uh, Christmas sweaters, you only wear them at Christmas time with the moose on it, and and then the bottle of uh, maple syrup on the on the side table beside him. That was uh, one of those great moments in uh, political uh, comedy. But that's why I'd be surprised. I, I, Lisa McLeod's an interesting choice here, uh, because most of the people that Ford had a, 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 an issue with, he got rid of before the election. Uh, you know, booted a few of them out because they didn't like his COVID policies and things like that. So it, it's going to be fascinating to see. Uh, we, we're talking about, for instance, we're having to have representation in Hamilton or not having to, but might. Uh, there's a Windsor seat that uh, that they flipped uh, that, that may be rewarded as well. So uh, we'll find out, I guess, in two hours, John. As you say, they're being pretty pretty tight-lipped about this whole thing. Uh, leaks are usual. That's, that's the norm, usually, when it comes to things like this. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's because of Doug Ford's acrimonious relationship with the media uh, or what it is, but uh, nobody really seems to know exactly how this is going to roll out. Well, it's uh, maybe it's a sign that uh, there's a, a bit of discipline there. It's hard to say, but uh, never an easy job. Uh, always going to be some people that are unhappy, but um, he, he does have, uh, as shown in the last term, he's, he's got some talent uh, to work with in, in the two or three uh, really critical portfolios. Absolutely. Uh, John, as always, thanks so much for uh, joining us today and for your input into this. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Developments uh, with Ukraine, of course, earlier this week, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky addressed uh, university students uh, uh, here in Canada and uh, and talked about what was going on there. And, of course, once again, uh, pleaded uh, for more weapons and a faster delivery of uh, the military uh, materials that they're going to need uh, because things are, are not going well for the uh, Ukraine forces right now. Uh, and to that point, Hungary is now calling for a new approach to ending the fighting in Ukraine. And as did La Cuerta has details. A senior aide to Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban saying the EU should push for negotiations and a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine rather than continue to ramp up sanctions against Russia. Belaz Orban telling Reuters additional sanctions wind up hurting EU countries. Hungary is one of the most pro-Russian countries of the bloc. It is currently holding up the latest package of sanctions against Moscow that would include a ban on Russian oil imports, which Hungary is heavily dependent on. In Esdelic ABC News. 
Paris. Uh, lots to talk about ceasefires, lots to talk about uh, who is winning at this present time. Uh, and an interesting op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail that I want to talk about with our next guest. Uh, Oral Brown is a, a professor of international relations and a senior member in the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. He's the author of that piece. Uh, professor, welcome back. Good to have you on the program once again. Good morning. I'd like to talk about the, the piece that you wrote for the Globe and Mail, which is entitled, With Enough Support, Ukraine Can Still Defeat Russia. Uh, it's not looking good in, on the battlegrounds right now. Uh, talk to us about your perspective on this and how you came to that conclusion. We have to look at the big picture. And what uh, that tells us is that Russia has failed to achieve its main goals. We mustn't forget that what Vladimir Putin had hoped for was a victory parade in Kiev. And they tried to grab the capital. They tried to take over all of Ukraine. He was denying the right of Ukraine to exist as an independent state. So they are enjoying, that is the Russians, some success in the East, partly because of uh, the restraint that the West has shown in sending armaments uh, to Ukraine. But the Russian losses have been very heavy. The Russian economy is in bad shape. And so they are vulnerable. But what is crucial is that the West uh, keeps up the pressure. And uh, it was a Russian writer, Tolstoy, who said that the strongest warriors our time and patience. And the question is, does the West have the patience? Well, it seems as if that patience is waning just a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, uh, it's, it, it's, I don't see the same uh, urgency, I guess, uh, from, from some of the NATO leaders and some of the Western leaders right now. They're certainly still sympathetic to it, but I don't know if they have the resolve to, to, to make this happen for them. This is the great danger that, uh, and this is what Vladimir Putin is counting on, that somehow Western resolve uh, is going to disappear and that uh, they will go back to the old way of appeasing Russia, of trying to take advantage of uh, having relatively inexpensive Russian energy. And Viktor Orban is a prime example of this because uh, he has basically allied himself with Vladimir Putin in many, many ways, and he is making proposals that would be disastrous for Ukraine and very good for Russia, actually. So um, this is a danger. But there are some encouraging signs, and the fact that uh, yesterday the European Union decided that uh, they were going to uh, have uh, Ukraine become a candidate for EU membership is an important step forward. Now, it is a promissory note, not a guarantee, but nonetheless, it is uh, sending a powerful message, not only to Ukraine, but also to Russia. The question is, what will be the follow-up? Will the West provide a kind of massive economic aid that Ukraine needs? Because we mustn't forget that Russia has not only targeted the Ukraine military, but it has targeted the entire infrastructure of uh, Ukraine. They have attacked uh, grain silos, they have blocked off any kind of naval trade that uh, Ukraine had, and that was absolutely crucial. They have attacked uh, infrastructure such as uh, power stations, uh, as well as railroads. And so the level of devastation needs rebuilding, and that is going to be very expensive, way beyond the means of Ukraine. The EU is a very, very wealthy uh, group. They can do it. Uh, and they need to do it, not just for the sake of Ukraine, but for their own sake. 
Uh, you mentioned about the, the, the bombings that, that have been going on uh, for quite some time, as you mentioned, uh, during infra at, at infrastructure projects. Uh, one of those grain terminals that was damaged, uh, I guess it was this week, uh, it was Canadian-owned, the Viterra grain terminal uh, attacked by Russians. Uh, what are the implications of that? I mean, is, is that deemed to be an attack or simply just collateral damage? It's hard to tell because uh, uh, the Russians have not been very good at using the most sophisticated weapons. They're running out of that, so they are using older bombs. At the very least, it shows recklessness, uh, a reckless disregard for civilian life, a reckless disregard for uh, civilian facilities. Um, it may be more because uh, they know that grain exports are the lifeblood of the Ukrainian economy. So uh, I think uh, uh, it may indeed be the case that in this particular instance, the targeting may have been deliberate, but we just are not sure because of the general inefficiency of the Russian armed forces. And so what we have to remember that uh, when the war started, the expectation was that Russia was going to win in a few days' time, that the mighty Russian army was just going to roll over Ukraine. And uh, at best, you know, they have made some limited gains in the east, and uh, um, the sophistication that was attributed to them in terms of cyber warfare, in terms of precision weapons, they even talked about the use of hypersonic weapons. That uh, has only been shown at best in a very limited way. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the long-term goals. And you talked about uh, in the op-ed piece uh, about how you can't look at Russia militarily without tying in economics. They, you know, they're, they're so intricately in, in intertwined. Uh, and Putin's survival I, I depends on, on this conflict, this war, doesn't it, uh, Professor? Uh, you know, he wants to be president for life. Uh, a speech earlier this week, as, as you referenced, he compared himself to Peter the Great, uh, the czar that expanded uh, the Russian Empire. And he basically is doing the same thing. Do, does he see himself as the reincarnation or, uh, or the, uh, the heir of, of a, a, a czar such as Peter? He has created a kind of political fantasy, his whole rule, I call it political magical realism, where you will recall that there were these uh, uh, demonstrations of almost, almost mythical powers where we would find treasures on the seabed that Russian archaeologists could not find, where we would fly rare birds uh, back to their habitat, uh, uh, you know, on a specialized aircraft. Uh, uh, he would... Uh, hunt for tigers and so on, projecting this kind of image uh, of invincibility. But all this ultimately served a specific purpose, and that is for him to stay in power. So references to historic figures, again, had that particular goal. I mean, there's a kind of irony in this, that uh, here's Vladimir Putin, uh, who is very high challenged, comparing himself to Peter the Great, who was six foot eight, someone who opened a window to the West, uh, Vladimir Putin is closing that window. And uh, Putin is not known for his sense of uh, irony, but he will try whatever he can to make sure that he stays in power because he knows that if he loses power, he's not going to go home somewhere to St. Uh, Petersburg and write his memoirs. He's made too many enemies. There are too many dead bodies. And how is that now? You talked to us earlier in the stages of, of the sanctions that were being imposed by NATO and, and, and many other Western nations now. Uh, and, and you talked about the impact that it was having on the Russian people uh, and that eventually that may 
uh, be impactful to the to the well to the to the rich, uh, the oligarchs, the ones who basically uh, put Putin where he is, and I guess could take him out of there if they decided that was the case. Are they tolerant about this? Are they understanding that yeah, this this isn't going to last forever? We can we can do this, or are they getting a little antsy right now? But about what's happening in their country. We see money coming out of Russia. We see a lot of millionaires, not so many of the billionaires who are fleeing. Uh, a lot of scientific talent is leaving Russia. So it's a slow, corrosive process. And this was the nature of dissent in Eastern Europe, that it was a relatively small number, and we uh, could not really quantify the social scientists, and we were not able to predict the implosion of the communist systems in Eastern Europe, which fell like dominoes in 1989, uh, but, it, but it did happen. So there is that element of unpredictability. It's the nature of dictatorships that, uh, and I may have mentioned this before on the show, that they tend to look very strong and stable until all of a sudden they do not look strong and stable. But the oligarchs, um, and sometimes they overlap because they're oligarchs who are also members of the security services, it has to be the security services and the military that will have to move. And they need to understand that Russia is being defeated. And this is where the West comes in. And the timidity of the West has not been very helpful. Uh, the West has always been a step, a step late. And uh, look at the kind of stipulations that, that uh, they make. When the United States sends armaments, they're saying, well, yes, the Russians are targeting your infrastructure. They're blowing up oil refineries. They are blowing up uh, uh, railway stations. But the weapons we have, you cannot use to touch anything inside Russia. So Russia has that kind of immunity, and Ukraine is suffering horrific uh, damage. And so you have to ask whether this can be changed. There's a naval blockade of uh, Ukraine. How is it that the West has not found a way of challenging effectively that naval blockade and freeing the grain exports from uh, Odessa and other ports uh, that could be accessible in Ukraine? So uh, when we look at what Putin has done, that's where the main blame is. But we also have to examine just how ineffective in many cases we have been, how timid we have been in the face of uh, aggression that is targeted first against Ukraine, but ultimately it is targeted against the post-Cold War order throughout Europe. And, and that comes back to the resolve you were talking to us about a couple of minutes ago, I think, Professor. Uh, you mentioned uh, French President Macron uh, in, in the op-ed piece, uh, who's, as you mentioned, his deference to Russia in the early part of this conflict here was uh, concerning, I think, to an awful lot of people. Uh, he's uh, obviously stirred his resolve right now. Uh, he made a speech this week and said, Ukraine must resist and must win. Uh, but I don't know if other Western leaders, other NATO leaders, even Macron himself has, has his position has have been weakened domestically now because of the, the, the changes in the government over there too. Do they have, they, they can do this. They can say, whatever you guys want, here it is, and I'll get it there tomorrow. But they, as you say, they seem to be dragging their heels here. They, they, they have been, and there are two elements in this. One is this reluctance to challenge Russia. And it's almost as if we don't want to provoke Russia, but of course everything provokes Vladimir Putin. The very existence of democracies provokes Vladimir Putin. But the other element is uh, more complicated, and that is that the Western powers have allowed their militaries to really run down. So it turns out 
that they have rather limited supplies of these sophisticated weapons themselves because they have not spent the money. They uh, reduced the size of the armed forces. You look at the Germans, uh, there was this drastic reduction under Angela Merkel to the point where perhaps one third of the German air force could not fly. And so Western countries have to restock their own uh, uh, arsenals as well. And Canada is not an exception. Uh, 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 Canada uh, is uh, indicative of uh, this, perhaps uh, one of the worst examples where we have very, very little. I think we sent over something like four long range howitzers uh, since we don't have that many, even if we wanted to, we could buy some, and perhaps that's the way to uh, to do it. Uh, but uh, we have not even been close to spending the 2% of the GDP that was agreed to as a guideline way back in 2014 at the NATO Wales conference. The Germans were down to 1.3%. Now, the Germans have dramatically increased, at least in terms of projection, their spending. Uh, in Canada, we have not quite done that. And that is one of the other things that we have to do. It is not just to help Ukraine, and that is crucial because that's an, an immediate need. But in the longer term, we also have to recognize that we are facing the case of Russia and, of course, in the case of China, a kind of geopolitical threat where these countries don't look very much at soft power, uh, particularly Russia, they look at hard power, they look at military hardware, and we have no choice. We have to have that. We have to have that military capacity. This is not to suggest that we should ignore soft power elements because they are crucial, and this is where democracies are particularly good. But hard power is something that we have neglected in a way for which we are paying a heavy price now. I just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Professor, but I would like to pivot if I could, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, today is the anniversary of the final report of uh, Ukraine Flight 752 that was shot down by Iran. Uh, and with the, I can understand the, you know, the, the primary goal here is, is what's happening in Ukraine, and that's what the Western world and specifically NATO are looking at. Uh, are they taking their eye off Iran? I mean, they're still a, a player, and they're still something, uh, a force to be contended with right now, as evidenced by that, the, that terrible tragedy, of course, with Flight 752. Uh, but I know it was a major concern with the U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies, too. Uh, is, is, is that concern magnified? Uh, I mean, when, when you take your eye off one of those guys, somebody else, it's like whack-a-mole. I hate to use that. I'm trying to be flippant with the analogy here. Uh, but are they still concerned, and are they still watching Iran? They should be. Uh, the problem is, how are they watching Iran? And there is a connection with Russia as well in this case, because let's not forget that the missiles that were used to shoot down that aircraft uh, were Russian-made anti-aircraft missiles. And uh, Iran is the world's largest supporter of terrorism, and they have been protected consistently by Russia and continue to be protected by, by Russia. And there have been judgments against Iran, which should be enforced, uh, and Iran should be a prior state, but uh, Russia has uh, done its best to try to uh, breach any kind of uh, economic uh, uh, blockade of, uh, of Iran. Uh, the sad reality is also that the United States has not been particularly good on this thing. They have desperately tried to negotiate some kind of agreement with Iran, which failed because Iran uh, insisted that uh, uh, the Revolutionary Guards uh, should not be listed as a terrorist organization. And that was 
just uh, going too far, even for the very pliable uh, American negotiators under Robert uh, Robert Malley. Uh, but in all of these things, what we see is that uh, rogue states, uh, states like Iran have acted with impunity. They often are protected by other rogue states like Russia, which have a, a permanent seat on the Security Council and military capabilities. And then there's a combination of Western fecklessness where we have not been very consistent. We uh, need to remember that uh, I believe it was 57 Canadians uh, died on that flight. Mm-hmm. We have been very deeply affected by that. Yeah, exactly, which is why there's such pushback when the uh, the Canadian soccer team wanted to play a friendly uh, against the Iranian team, too. They, they've obviously subsequently dropped that whole idea. Uh, very troubling times. It's always great to get your perspective on this, Professor. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Professor Earl Brown, uh, who uh, joins us from the University of Toronto, uh, keeping an eye on what's going on in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, very troubling situation. And you noticed a, a sense of anxiety in, in uh, President Zelensky's comments to uh, Canadian university students earlier this week, too. Uh, you know, we're getting a lot of promises made uh, from Western nations. Uh, but until the weapons and the equipment are delivered, uh, they're still in a very dire circumstance there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Landmark decision, that's what we're told. Uh, The U.S. Senate has approved a landmark gun violence bill. Passage in the House of Representatives is next. Mike Garcia has the details. On a 65-33 vote with 15 Republicans joining all Democrats and two independents, the Senate easily approved a bipartisan gun violence bill Thursday night. Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas was one of the key architects. The potential we have to save lives is worth any sort of concession we might have had to make during the negotiation. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. It's not the measure I would have written if I'd been doing it alone, but it marks meaningful progress. The bill, which follows mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, would toughen background checks for the youngest gun buyers, help states put in red flag laws, and fund local programs for school safety, mental health, and violence prevention. The House now takes up the measure. Mike Gracia, Washington. So uh, it is the first time in many, many years the legislation of this ilk has been passed. Uh, but is it going to be effective? Uh, and, and is it even worthwhile given uh, the recent Supreme Court decision? There's a, a fascinating op-ed piece in the Los Angeles Times that uh, addresses all of these issues. It's called To Bear Arms Didn't Always Mean What Today's Pro Crowd pro-gun crowd thinks. Uh, The author is uh, Jason Opel, who is an associate professor and chair of the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University, joining us now on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, Fascinating piece, by the way, in the the Times about what's going on here. Uh, And and I I was going to ask you this question anyway, but just in light of what happened, the Senate passes this bill, the Supreme Court makes a ruling that basically says you can carry a gun anywhere you want now. Contrary, in other words, they ruled against the state of New York. Does one cancel out the other here? Uh, yes, uh, in, in my opinion, it, it does very strongly. So the Supreme Court ruled early in the day and early afternoon on Thursday, uh, striking down a 109-year-old uh, New York law, one of many um, passed in the 19th and 20th centuries, to restrict uh, the carrying of concealed weapons and handguns in crowded public places. Uh, and then a few hours after that, the Senate passed a quite modest uh, compromise bill, uh, and the Supreme Court case, in my opinion, is far more significant, and I'll use the word guts, uh, or eviscerates the uh, already modest uh, gun control bill later that passed later that day. 
I, I, I don't know if the senators realized this. I mean, they certainly knew this was on the horizon. Uh, as, as, as you wrote in the piece, uh, it, this was not unexpected by the Supreme Court, was it? No, it was not. So the way it works normally is that when there are major cases before the Supreme Court, there are uh, so-called initial arguments, which are usually presented uh, up to six months or so before the ruling comes down. And in the initial arguments, you can, you can get a sense, usually a pretty clear sense, about how they're going to rule. And the initial arguments in November uh, 2021 clearly indicated that the uh, very conservative, I would say, even, you know, kind of far-right uh, supermajority on the Supreme Court was going to strike down New York's uh, gun control bill. Um, and, you know, to my mind, that's a much more significant event yesterday than this uh, quite tepid um, Senate bill. Yeah, when they say that it was bipartisan, and uh, you, you take that with a grain of salt. Basically, uh, as I read it last night anyway, they pretty much gutted uh, what probably could have and should have been in that bill anyway. Yes, so um, you know, that's, you know, that's why I was able to be bipartisan. And I guess in the, in a, in the spirit of being somewhat op- optimistic uh, about my home country, uh, it does indicate that there is at least a possibility of some degree of coordination between Democrats and Republicans. Um, but the bill is, you know, very modest. It does not, um, prohibit the, uh, or, or, or ban any, uh, weapons to be owned as the last, uh, major legislation in 1994 did. It, what it does basically is strengthen so-called red flag laws, which exist in 19 states. Uh, that puts a, basically a, a, a mechanism in place for if a dangerous individual is about to buy a gun, there's a so-called red flag that comes up to a legitimate seller of that gun and the sale is um, delayed. So it strengthens those bill, those laws which are only in 19 states uh, and will be in parallel with the Supreme Court decision anyway. Uh, the other thing it does, probably more significant, is that it enables law enforcement to crack down on gun dealers who don't abide by any of the existing laws, however weak they are. So it does some things, um, but you know it's bipartisan because it doesn't do much. Yeah, well, it maybe made them feel a lot better when they put their heads on their pillow that night. But as you say, how effective is that actually going to be? I mean, even when President Obama tried to move the assault weapons deal, there's a sunset clause on it, and it has expired, and there's no way they're going to renew it now. So you wonder, I mean, the, the sorts of deals you have to make just to get a bill through here uh, really uh, kind of negates the whole possibility and the whole thrust of why the bill was there in the first place. It certainly weakens it greatly, and this is even if, even without the Supreme Court decision, right? So, uh, without the Supreme Court decision, you could say that what happened yesterday was some degree of progress. And I should say as well, there, in addition to the red flag laws being strengthened and that uh, new ability for federal agents, usually FBI agents, to crack down on illicit gun dealers, it does provide some aid for uh, local and state officials to help with uh, school safety and mental health programs. I mean, it might do some good, um, but it's so, you know, modest. And as I say, it will immediately be severely uh, um, undermined by the Supreme Court case a few hours earlier. So, I mean, to be concrete about this, let's say you have a red flag law, which prevents someone from buying a gun, uh, or pardon me, delays someone from buying a weapon when their name comes up as being a dangerous individual who has, threaten someone or has a restraining order on them or something like that. Well, now that individual can use the Supreme Court decision from yesterday and say that is inhibiting my unrestricted individual right to carry a weapon. And given the nature of the court, I suspect that that will work. And so the red flag laws that were strengthened anyway, that, that, were, that were strengthened yesterday, 
which are modest anyway and only exist in 19 states, it seems to me are on the chopping block due to the, the Supreme Court decision yesterday. And, and at the foundation for this reticence to, to move forward in, in the manner in which I think a lot of people think they should, according to statistics and surveys that have been done, is the yeah. Second Amendment. Uh, yeah, if you want to defeat a candidate in a midterm election, all you have to say is he's going to try to take your guns away from you. Uh, and that seems to work just about every time. Uh, and that's that's the essence of, of your piece in the L.A. Times. Talk to us about that and, and what some people, I, I was going to use the word misinterpret the Second Amendment. I think they probably do know what it means, uh, but they've twisted it around. And, uh, you know, when, when the, 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 the myth becomes popular, it's the myth becomes fact in some people's minds. Yes. Um, so just, you know, say that the Bill of Rights that refers to the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution uh, passed as a group in 1791. Second Amendment of those 10 says that because um, the, the, the security of a free state requires a well-recognized militia, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the first part of the sentence clearly indicates to those reading English that it means that the right that is, that is enunciated to keep and bear arms is in the context of militia service. And there is a, there are precedents for this, for example, in Switzerland, where there's universal military militia uh, service. So, okay, it's a militia-associated right to, quote, keep and bear arms. In the 18th century, keeping something meant having it in your home. Bearing arms meant wearing, like, having a, a musket or a rifle on your shoulder, like a, a visible arms that you use for the public, for the well-regulated militia. So that's what it meant. And, you know, it can be expanded a little bit here and there. Certainly no one was going to challenge hunting rifles, which are, of course, very useful in many places and still are. Um, but there's no protection that can be, to my mind, responsibly imagined for concealed weapons, for automatic weapons or weapons that are of military grade that are not for any kind of civic purpose. So what has happened really quite recently is that a very, very far-right interpretation of the Second Amendment has turned that phrase into an almost unlimited right for individuals to go armed, as opposed for a well-regulated militia to bear arms. Uh, you know, that's quite different. And as a final point, I'll just say, the Supreme Court did not get involved in the Second Amendment really until 2008. For most of American history, there were local and state regulations on, on various weapons. There were often outright prohibitions on going armed and carrying concealed weapons. It was only in 2008 that the Supreme Court already, with this new very conservative majority, ruled that it had a, a meaning of an individual right. And only since yesterday that that individual right has been taken to mean almost unrestricted individual right to pack heat in public places. I, and with your research, and I was fascinated uh, to because uh, I was not aware of this. Uh, and we know this debate's been going on for for decades, but it, the debate was happening back then too when they they first passed the Second Amendment, wasn't it? That uh, you know, if they still a number of states didn't like the idea of people carrying concealed weapons around, and uh, you would charge it was a misdemeanor to be caught, and that that's that that was back then, not just now. Yes, so there's very little debate. I mean, you know, people were fine with and really attached to the idea of militias because in the United States, as in Great Britain, to some extent in Canada as well, there's a real fear of standing armies. That's a very traditional fear of, you know, the people being oppressed by an army. 
this is the idea is, well, you know, citizens and militia will protect against that. That was not controversial, and it's protected by the Second Amendment. And that's, you know, that's pretty much set. But what happened in the early years of the Republic was that people were going armed, which means they were carrying concealed weapons, like handguns and cane swords and such. And very quickly, the state said, no, you can't do that, and started to ban them. The first laws appear in 1813, and there were dozens of them in the 19th century. And they're not that controversial, because they don't go against Second Amendment. The Second Amendment has nothing to do with carrying concealed weapons, or at least they didn't think it did. And so what I find frustrating is that, you know, the, the ruling yesterday said you can't, you can't make a state law against our quote-unquote gun tradition. But the, the case itself strikes down a 109-year-old law. So obviously there are, there are gun control traditions in the United States as well. And those seem to have been swept aside yesterday. Uh, they were swept aside yesterday. And so I think those who advocate gun control, which is the great majority of Americans, want some degree of gun control, uh, will once again be frustrated and left out uh, in the cold. Uh, as a companion issue to this, talk, talk to us about the impact and the influence of the National Rifle Association in this debate uh, and with that legislation too, Professor. I mean, we know that they've been a very powerful tool for, for gun owners for the longest time. Uh, lately, we're reading stories about, well, they're not as powerful as they used to be. Well, clearly, they still have influence. Oh, they have great influence. Uh, I guess there's two things to say about the NRA. The first is that you know, it's always important to, to not, not essentialize things and realize how much they change. For most of the NRA's history, dating back to the 1860s, they were a nonpartisan group that was really mostly about marksmanship and just like a hunting group. They really weren't politically involved. That changed radically in the late 1970s when they kind of went all in on the Republican side for, you know, they say a quite, uh, I'll charitably say, new interpretation of the, of the Second Amendment to mean the individual right to carry whatever guns you want, wherever you want. So it's really only been since about 1980 with the rise of, um, of Ronald Reagan that you see the NRA as a major political player. And they remain so today. I am skeptical of, of you know, rumors of their decline. Um, and, you know, what one might ask, well, if they're so, if, if most Americans want gun control, how is the NRA so powerful? You know, I guess there's two answers to that. The first is that in any kind of democratic system, definitely in the United States, dedicated, well-financed, well-connected minorities routinely defeat, usually defeat, disorganized majorities. Um, and secondly, the NRA is a ruthless political operator, and they will punish any low-level or upper-level um, elected official in key states who crosses them at all. And so, you know, it's easier for many congressmen and, and senators in conservative states to do whatever the NRA says, um, even if the NRA's arguments are ex increasingly radical and increasingly uh, different from, the, from most Americans. One other thing, because you talked about destroying myths in the op-ed piece. Uh, the other myth, of course, I, I'd used it as a rather sarcastic example. They're going to take your guns away. Uh, mm -hmm. To my knowledge, I don't know that anybody who's proposed legislation that says they want to ban guns, take guns away, uh, that what they've talked about is controlling it. And not, not unlike what Matthew McConaughey said uh, in the White yep. House uh, just after the Evaldi massacre. Uh, he's a gun owner. He's not saying take the guns away. His responsibility is, was the key word. Uh, Hillary Clinton was accused of, of, of destroying the Second Amendment. She had no intention of doing that. But when I guess that's marketing, isn't it, really, Professor? When you say it often enough, people believe it. It is. And the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that the NRA, in, in many ways, is simply a lobby for the gun manufacturing industry. 
And if you have a single weapon and you responsibly keep it, the gun, unlike a car or a computer, does not, you know, uh, cease to function in five years. It lasts for 20 years or longer or much longer. That's a problem if your business is selling guns. And so they're continually having to get people to buy more guns. And the way to do that is to gin up the rhetoric and make it seem like people are going to take your gun, even though, as you say, there is no one on the political spectrum who proposes to confiscate weapons, which has been done in other countries, notably Australia. Um, so in many ways, you know, forgive me for the cynical interpretation, but part of it is simply marketing for a business that needs to keep selling its product. And this particular product is very stable and durable, and that's not good if you want to be selling more of them. Uh, it's a great piece. People can go to the webpage and, and check it out. Uh, it, it, it's an eye-opener, and I think it sets the record straight on many issues. Professor, it was a pleasure having you on the program. I, just as a postscript to our conversation, uh, we're heading towards the end of June, and the Supreme Court, of course, I guess is cleaning up business uh, before they adjourn for the summer. And uh, we just got news now that they've just overturned Roe versus Wade. So yep. we have a lot more to talk about and a lot more to write about, I guess, in the days and months ahead, don't we? Yes, uh, it's it interesting times in the United States. <laughs> it certainly are. Professor, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Jason Opel, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University, although he, as you mentioned, he is an American citizen uh, working at McGill University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.